I want to congratulate all of you like me that have appropriately dressed for the holiday today, um, the season. No, I did. No, I'm dressed for the season. I'm absolutely This is March Madness. This is Duke Blue I'm wearing today. Thank you very much. So, uh, and, um, but if you don't think I'm wearing green for St. Patrick's Day, then you don't have any imagination. And that's on you. No, seriously, because I'm wearing blue and there's yellow in my shirt. And yellow and blue make green. So, I'm, I'm good today. So, we, uh, I totally forgot it was St. Patrick's Day, and I got, and then I get to church, and Tony walks in. Where'd Tony go? Where'd she go? She's back in the back, and she's wearing green. I'm like, Tony, you saw me before I left. Why didn't you say anything? She's like, I don't care about you that much. So, um, <laughs> no, she, no, she didn't say that. She just forgot to. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I'm in trouble now. All right. How do you segue now to something serious? We are, um, this season of, of Lent, this true season, holy season for us, uh, we're, we're remembering that on the day that Jesus was crucified, he hung on the cross for six hours. Scriptures tell us from nine to three. And in those six hours, the Gospels record seven words, seven phrases, statements that, that Jesus makes from the cross. And over the, the six weeks of Lent, before we get to Easter, we're going to look at um, those statements. We're going to look at six of those statements, those last words, or those words that Jesus speaks from the cross. If you were here last week, we began with Luke's account of the first words that he spoke, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we continue with Luke this morning, because as I said last week, Luke gives us the first, the second, and the seventh statements, the final statement that Jesus makes from the cross. So as we continue this series, we stay today in the Gospel of Luke, in that 23rd chapter, as we really pick up right where we left off last week. Jesus now on the cross and, and into now this, this period of excruciating suffering uh, in, 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 a, in a public execution. And these next words that he speaks and the circumstances around them. So we pick up Luke, Gospel of Luke, 23rd chapter, beginning at verse 35. This is what we read. It says, The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written... There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, that we would hear anew, afresh, these words, these powerful words, this, this testimony you give in these 
last moments of, of your life and the witness it gives to us for what it means to, to reflect the love of God, your love in this world. Speak to us now, we pray, through your Holy Spirit, and may these moments and these words spoken here be pleasing to you. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. Friday and Saturday, the last couple days, I have spent uh, in Leesburg with uh, Julie McNaughton, uh, our youth director, and with a, a number of our, our young people, uh, mostly middle schoolers, uh, who are going through the process of confirmation. We do this uh, every time we do a confirmation group. We take, we take them to the conference host confirmation weekends at the, at the Warren Willis camp in Leesburg, where our kids will be fundraising to go for, for summer camp. And so we spent a couple nights there. They're actually there this morning. They're worshiping together with other churches at camp. I left last night and they'll be traveling. They'll probably be leaving um, about uh, 10, 30, 11 o'clock. So we want to keep them in prayer as they, as they travel back. Uh, that journey up and down the interstate can be fun. We, we left, as I said, we left Friday afternoon. And um, we're driving up the interstate. We're getting toward, toward Leesburg. We're going to stop right at the exit and, there and have dinner with the kids before we got them to camp. And so I had three or four kids in the car with me. Julie had some with her. And, and we were doing good. It was, we were having a good time. And uh, one of the, the kids said to me, said, you know, I've, I've got to go to the bathroom. And um, I said, no problem. We've got, eight, we've got about eight, ten miles to go to the exit. And we're stopping right at the exit. We're good. We'll be there in six minutes, seven minutes, tops. God's got a great sense of humor, let me tell you. We hit, I, this is no exaggeration. I'm, this is not me kind of, you know, embellishing the story the last exit before our exit we just passed it it was an overpass we just get over the pass and we locked i mean everything locked up it took we went eight miles in an hour and 20 minutes it took us an hour and 20 minutes our nerves were shot i watched i have my my um ways the the map and it told me to get off it said get off at the last exit, but I figured it was just taking me a shortcut because we were going to eat, so I didn't pay any attention. That's a whole sermon illustration. And it went, I literally watched it go from um, estimated arrival 620 to 750, just like that. And I went, oh, no. So, but we made it, and we have a story to tell forever. They said, how long before this works into your sermon? They asked me that. I said, about a day and a half. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but we got there, and, and the kids were great. And that was the, the most challenging part. The kids were great. We gather, gather in small group time, in worship time, small group time, and, and some, certainly some fun time. And uh, so, so I had them together yesterday morning. And we're in our, our small group area, and we're sitting in a circle. And so I've got a captive audience. So I thought, I'm, I'm going to use them here for my own purpose. And, um, and I asked them a question. Um, I said... You ever, I asked them if they'd ever been falsely accused of something, and they sprung to life. I mean, they all had stories. Uh, you know, you could just see kind of the energy in them as they wanted to share their stories about a time that somebody had accused them of doing something they hadn't done. Somebody had blamed them for something they weren't um, guilty of. You, you know, stories that, that, that we have. And a lot of times it was a sibling or somebody at school. They weren't, you know, serious in the sense of they, they weren't... Um, hugely negatively impactful in their lives, but they were memorable. They were experiences that, that had stuck out to them. And then I asked them the question. I said, 
how did you respond to it? How did you respond to, to this, this false accusation? And their answers were probably exactly what your answers would be, what my answers would be. Uh, they talked about getting angry. They talked about trying to get even with the person who falsely accused them. They talked about how hard they worked to try to prove they were innocent, that they hadn't done anything wrong. Um, they, they talked about getting very frustrated or yelling or acting out. They, they talked about all these human emotions that, that reflected kind of an inward process of, of having to deal with this, this affront, this, this unfairness of life. And again, they process almost, I think, exclusive, the, the same way we would, the same way I would. And, and I use that, and I wanted to think about that, and I wanted to think about that with them because, again, it gives us a good comparison to the way that Jesus deals with the same experience. Because when we come to this part of the gospel story, the story of Christ's life, Jesus on the cross, we have to start with the remembrance that he's on the cross. He's being executed for, for, for the accusation, for crimes that, that he did not commit. He's being accused of things he was not guilty of. That is what gets him to the cross. He dies a criminal's death as an enemy of the state, as an enemy of Rome. He dies because he's accused of proclaiming himself a king in conflict with the Caesar. He's accused of telling the people that they do not need to honor the laws of Rome. He's accused of being adversarial to the authority of Rome who rules the, the, the nation, if you will. So, so he dies for crimes because those are things he did not do. Remember, the, the Jewish leaders accused him of blasphemy. They accused him of, of proclaiming himself Messiah. And, and you can kind of make a case that, that he did do those things. Not certainly in the way that they said, but that he did. But, but the Jewish leaders, they didn't have the power. They didn't have the authority to execute. They had to trump up charges against Rome because Rome had the authority to execute. And Pilate knows it's trumped up. In fact, in the early verses of chapter 23, which we just read from, if you go back to the beginning, Pilate says to the crowd when, when Jesus is before them, he says, I can find no fault with him. I find nothing that, that he has done. But his proclamation doesn't silence their cries and their, 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 their just hunger for some sort of a vengeance. And so Jesus is sent to the cross. He is sent to, to be executed as a common criminal. It is the most humiliating and painful way to die. Um, it, was, it was seen, if you died a crucifixion, it was seen that God's favor was not with you. That you had... You had lost God's favor. That's why Paul would say it is a stumbling, it's foolishness to the Greeks, and it's a stumbling block to the Jews because no one who's favored of God could die in such a way. But that's exactly how Jesus dies. And he has to process this unfairness. He has to process this injustice that he is experiencing. And to, 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 to drive that home more, and to, to further associate him with the common criminal, Jesus dies between two common criminals. It says that on his left and his right, right, criminals were executed. So Jesus dies with people that we understand he was dying for. He was, he was dying with the kind of people that he came to save. But here's the thing. We could say he was dying for these kind of people. 
But the reality is we need to look around at each other, at ourselves, look in a mirror first and say, he was dying for these kind of people. We get a, we get a glimpse of who Jesus is giving his life for, and it's not for them, it's for us. And who he's willing to be associated with, even in death, in order to, to reveal the love and, and the grace of God. And so between these two thieves, Jesus is crucified. And an interesting thing happens in his encounter with these two gentlemen. As he's being mocked by the crowd who have gathered for this public execution. As he's being mocked undoubtedly by the religious leaders and the soldiers. As they're proclaiming to him, if you are the Messiah, save yourself. If you possible, if you have this authority, do something. Not recognizing the sacrifice he's making on the cross. The giving of himself that he's offering. But as that is going on, that indignity, to add insult to injury one of the criminals begins to mock him. One of the men who's dying the same death he's dying begins to mock him. I I cannot wrap my head around that. I can can at least begin to, I don't want to say understand, but I, I, I can grasp the concept of the crowd and the religious leaders mocking him, mocking that which they feared. But I, but I can't, for the life of me, figure on what grounds this criminal mocks him. But he does. And then he says something very, very interesting. I think it's verse 39. He says, if you are the Messiah, save yourself and us. And now it starts to crystallize a little. If you are the Messiah, save us. See, we get in both criminals, and we'll talk about the second one in a minute, we get a picture of the way that sometimes others and us approach faith. And this criminal is approaching faith from a very self-serving perspective. If you are the Messiah, save yourself and us. Now, as easy as it is to be critical of that kind of a statement, to be judgmental about somebody who would make that kind of a statement, ask yourself this question. Seriously, ask yourself this question. Have you ever been guilty of that kind of faith? Because this is what it looks like. God, if you love me, then you will. God, if you are real, then this. God, I will believe if you will, dot, dot, dot. It's contingent faith. It's faith that says, I, I will trust, I will believe, but you need to do something for me. You know the statement, there are no atheists in foxholes. Why? Because in a foxhole, everybody's life's in risk. Everybody's life is on the line. And so the idea is we cry out to God so often in a time of need because what our desire is for God to do something for us. That's what this criminal is saying. If you are, he doesn't really care if Jesus comes off the cross. He wants himself off the cross. But the reality is we sometimes fall into that trap. We have to ask ourselves that question. Where do we sometimes fall into that in our own lives, in our own patterns, in our own prayer, in our own honest moments with God? God, if you love me, if you're real, if you're there, then you will. That's what the first criminal does. And then immediately we get introduced, if you will, to the second. And his heart and his perspective is in a very, very different place. He looks at his partner. We don't really know. We don't know for sure whether they were partners in crime, whether they knew each other. But, but regardless, he looks at the other criminal 
And he asks him, don't you fear God? And he says something very interesting. We are getting what we deserve. Now that to me is very, very interesting. Because even when people are punished for crimes they've committed, rarely do they say, I'm getting what I deserve. And this gentleman, these two men are being executed. But he says that we have done wrong. We are getting what we deserve. But the interesting thing is he recognizes something is out of place. Of the three that are being executed, he immediately knows that somebody's up here that doesn't belong to be here. And that's exactly what he says. But this man has done nothing wrong. You know, faith sometimes requires us to see what is that shouldn't be. Hear that? Faith sometimes requires us to see what things that are that should not be. And sometimes God will move us to intercede and to, to work in acts of justice and compassion and love to try to right wrongs, to, to step into places where things are broken that we can have a hand in fixing. But, but this criminal recognizes something. He recognizes that Jesus is in this place fixing something that's beyond anybody's ability to fix. It's something significant. It's powerful. He doesn't deserve to be here, but he is. And, and sometimes what we have to see, and when we come to the cross, we, we need to see this. In, in the midst of this injustice, what we recognize is that Jesus is voluntarily going somewhere he doesn't deserve to be to fix something that we have no right to ask him to fix. Hear that again. He is going where he doesn't deserve to be to fix something that we have no right to ask him to fix. Jesus is on the cross for our brokenness. Jesus is on the cross because our sin and our disobedience and our unfaithfulness has broken a relationship with a perfect and, and loving God that we're incapable of fixing on our own. So he lifts us up. So he becomes the bridge over that chasm that's called sin that separates us from God. He does for us what we are incapable of doing for ourselves. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, I referenced it last week. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. Something we can't do for ourselves that God does for us. This criminal recognizes it. I wouldn't, might, might not be able to articulate it, but he knows something significant is happening here. The question is, do we see it? Because we're stubborn people. I know I'm not the only stubborn person in the room. We have a hard time of recognizing need. I'll tell you where this, this plays out, and I'm really glad Tony's in the back row for this one. Um, but I'll tell you where this plays out in, in, in sometimes could be significant, but in, in, in my own patterns. Every once in a while, like all of us, I'll come down with something not feeling well, sick, something's hurting, whatever the case is. And it might linger for a little bit. And Tony inevitably will say to me, and I'm sure she's not the only one that said this to a spouse or someone they love, um, hey, why don't you go to the doctor? <laughs> and I will tell her, I don't need to go to the doctor. I will be fine. I can fix it myself. I can go to the drugstore and get over-the-counter drugs. I can take a home remedy. I can Google it. Google it can fix everything. <laughs> and sometimes it does, and it goes away on its own. But every once in a while, it doesn't. Yeah, some of you are pointing. I see. I see pointing. And, um, and I find myself much sicker than I otherwise might have been. A couple times pretty, pretty miserably sick. 
and usually then at the doctor who then says to me, why didn't you come sooner? <laughs> and I say I wanted to, but my wife said I didn't need to come sooner. <laughs> so. Okay, not really, but, uh, but, but the point is here, I have sometimes have to get to a point where I realize that something is wrong I can't fix. Something is wrong that, that somebody skilled, gifted, called, needs to fix for me. And that's a hard place, and there's a lot of avenues in our lives that that will rear its ugly head, our, our own pride or, or belief in our own self-sufficiency. And self-sufficiency is a value, it's, it's, it's important in some ways, but not in this. He who knew no sin became sin so that we may become the righteousness of God to fix something for us we can't fix. To, to heal something we can't heal, to, to, to reunite over a chasm that we can't bridge. And this criminal recognizes that. He knows he has done wrong, but he knows this Jesus hasn't. And he says, he doesn't deserve to be here. And then he says something that reveals this recognition of the significance, this recognition of this divinity of, of Christ. He says to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now notice, he doesn't ask for deliverance. He doesn't ask Jesus to get him off the cross. He doesn't ask for Jesus to bring him into the kingdom. He just says, I know that you are who you claim to be. And that where you will be is with God. Remember me when you get there. Remember me when you get there. It is powerful act of confession and a powerful statement of faith. And this, in this response, in the wor next words that Jesus speaks, we learn something about the nature and character of God. And if you don't remember anything else today, I want you to walk out with these three words. God is unfair. God is unfair because this criminal who by his own admission has done wrong, who's hanging on a cross, dying a criminal's death, he asks Jesus for a measure of grace. He's simply throwing himself on the grace of Jesus. Remember me. Throwing himself at the grace of Jesus. He is wanting the grace and forgiveness that we all want. He is asking for the same thing that all of us in faith ask for. But see, here's the difference. Most of us live far better lives. Most of us haven't done these kind of things. A lot of us have gone to church our whole lives. A lot of us keep the laws. We don't break the law, maybe except for speeding every once in a while. We're good people. We, we, we give, we tithe, we, we take care of the needy, we serve. We do, we do good stuff. And this criminal is asking for the same grace that we hope God will show us. And the good news is God is radically unfair because he gets it. He gets it. The very next thing that Jesus says, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The good news is God is unfair. God does not give to any of us what we deserve. 
and gives us what he desires for us to have. He says to Moses in Exodus 33, I will be gracious to who I choose to be gracious to. I will show mercy to who I choose to be merciful. And the good news is he is that to all of us. This becomes an embodiment of the parable Jesus tells in Matthew 20. In Matthew 20, Jesus tells a parable of the workers in the vineyard. And the the owner of the field goes out in the morning and he hires the workers to come and work his field. And he says, I will pay you a denarii for your day's labor. And they're like, that's great. That's a fair wage. And so they start working. And then as Jesus tells the parable, at noon he goes out and he gets some more workers. And at three he goes out and gets some more workers. And then in the last hour of the day he goes and gets some more workers. And at the end of the day they all get one denarii. And the workers who started that morning are ticked off. Because they're like, we worked all day. These guys got the same as us, and they worked one hour. And the owner of the vineyard says, I gave you what I agreed to pay you. Why would you begrudge my goodness, my, grace, my, my, my um, generosity towards someone else? Because that's inherently unfair. But God is a God who is unfair, and that's good news. He gives his grace to all who seek it. Doesn't matter when, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter if you've gone to church your whole life, doesn't matter if you've left, led a spotless life or a pretty questionable life. When we seek God's grace, he freely gives it. And this criminal says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, in his radical unfairness, says, you know what? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Oh. That's good. That's good. And that's good for us. Now, here's an interesting thing. Jesus says paradise. Now, here's something I didn't even know until I started studying this. This is the only place in the entire Gospels where Jesus uses the word paradise. He talks about heaven in a number of places, but he doesn't say heaven here. He says paradise. And the word paradise means a garden, a place of a a, a park, a a place of, of refuge, if you will. And it's significant that certainly Jesus is alluding to heaven, but but he is saying to this criminal who's dying the same kind of agonizing death that he's dying, is that you, this day, are going to be in a place where things are set right, where wrongs are made right, where trees are not used for instruments of execution, where you will know peace. Like the Garden of Eden, that word gets translated in Greek as paradise. He gives the most encouraging and loving words he can give to a dying man. In these moments of agony, you are going to know a release and a restoration you cannot begin to imagine. This, this is the good news. This is the message of, of God's love. As, as Sam's saying, you know, though, though our sins, and I don't remember the exact words, but though our sins are many, his grace is, is more. We, we sat in worship on Friday night in, uh, at the Life Enrichment Center in the worship, in, in the sanctuary there, or the, the worship space at camp, and, and we sang a song that I've heard before. Our, our praise band has sang it, The Reckless Love of God. Uh, it, it goes, the, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Uh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. And then the next line is the the line that spoke to me and and spoke really about what this message says to us. It says, I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. 
the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. This is reckless love. This is a love so freely given that even a criminal in his last breaths of life can find grace. Honest grace. The question is, in those moments in our life, which one of those two places do we find ourselves? Criminal one or criminal two? Now, it's not a pleasant place to think about, but we find ourselves, we, we can choose to be in one of those two places. We can choose to seek a faith that says, God, what have you done for me? Or a faith that confessionally and humbly opens itself to a free gift that God gives. A faith that says it is self-serving or a faith that is self-giving. A faith that is arrogant or a faith that is confessional and open and honest about this good and free gift that God gives. That's the option. That's the opportunity that we have to really ask ourselves, where are we? Between those two extremes, where do we find ourselves? Truly, I tell you, this day you will be with me in paradise. That's not just the criminal's promise. That's ours when we come to faith. Criminal one or criminal two? The question, brothers and sisters, is where do you choose to be? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, create in us humble and open hearts. Create in us hearts that are willing to receive the gift of your unfairness. That says you don't give us what we've earned. You, you don't give us what we deserve. You give us far more. Because that's your reckless love. Thank you for that reckless love that claims us for that promise that, that redeems us and for the life of Christ, which through his sacrifice has brought us near to you again. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Strengthen us in faith and overwhelm us with the promise of your love. We pray in Jesus. Amen.